This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Okay, hi everyone, and thank you so much for having me. I'm glad I was able to pinch hit here. And um, thank you all so much for coming to this talk. I'm really glad to see all of your faces and that we're taking up so much space in the Connolly Cinema is awesome for issues like these because they're really important to me. And I know that they're really important to you. So I'm going to step away from the mic because I'm not going to stand here the whole time. And I'm just going to make sure, can everybody hear me? So on the way back, yeah, thumbs up, awesome. Okay. So um, some of you may know me, others of you may not. I teach the Psychology of Gender and Sexuality course here on campus, and that's currently happening right now. So some of you may be in my class. If that's the case, all of this should be a review for you. Um, you should be able to teach this yourselves by now. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what gender does on Villanova's campus and how it's important for us as Villanovans and as a person that graduated from Villanova, what that looks like. And before we start kind of into some of the information that I'm going to give, I'd like to make sure that you're all aware that I expect participation um, throughout. So if you have things that you want to say while we're going while we're going through the material, raise your hand. I'm happy to entertain questions or to talk about how this might apply to your life. But I also want to facilitate an interesting dialogue about how gender functions here at Villanova and what we think about that and how that relates to our daily lives at Villanova, but also the mission of Villanova and our education and our experiences here socially, politically, personal experiences, right? So I want to get at how are we feeling gender operates and what does that do? And what can we do differently, if anything, if we want to make changes about how gender operates right now. So as usual, I'm sure this is an audience that sort of has some interest in gender. But another action point that I'd like you to take away from the things that we're going to talk about today is start now thinking about how can you incorporate this information into conversations that you have with your friends, into conversations that you have with people from other universities? How can we incorporate this information into the larger and broader culture at Villanova? And what might that do for us? Um, and I think that this can be an uncomfortable topic, right? Because what we're talking about is, what's the status quo? What's the culture? How does the culture operate here today? And sometimes people are afraid to talk about that, right? Because they don't want to be seen as someone who's shaking the trees, right? You don't want to be seen as someone that's causing trouble. You don't want to confront your friends when they say or do something that you might find to be offensive or questionable, right? But the idea is the more that people do that, the more that we make that the norm, the more things will change. The more things that will be, the more we'll be able to be truly an inclusive and caring community together. So I want us all to think about that and start off with that sentiment of thinking about the material not just as I'm presenting it, but also think about how it relates to you, to your daily experiences, to experiences you've had on campus, and what that means. So that's the context that I want to put things into. Um, so I'm going to start off with just a little bit of background so that everybody knows why I'm here and why I think we all should be here. So why should we care about gender? Well, we learn gender at a very, very young age, like a baby, right? So I'm at the age now where a lot of my friends are having babies. And the first question people ask when someone gets pregnant is, is it a boy or a girl? What is it, right? And I had a friend who had a baby shower and didn't know, had not looked at what the sex of the baby was. So they were having it be a surprise. And people were so confused. What do I buy? I don't know what to buy this baby. I don't know if the baby's a boy or a girl. I'm not sure what to buy the baby, right? So everybody was kind of up in arms, not knowing what to clothe an infant in, because they weren't sure if it should be blue or if it should be pink, right? That, to me, is very confusing from a societal level, right? It's a baby. But unfortunately for us, as we do these sorts of things and promulgate these sorts of things in society, we begin to associate boy with blue, girl with pink, right? That, in and of itself, is an, a negative connotation, right? But it tends to have more things that link on to that, and we'll talk about that um, moving forward. But as we make those associations, right, people start to naturalize that. So instead of saying, I dressed my baby girl in pink, so as my baby girl grows up, she prefers pink things because that's what I kind of told her to wear, right? We look at it as girls like pink things, right? We just take it as a naturalized assumption. And we start learning these things from a very young age and ingraining these things moving forward very, very quickly and established and establishing them in a very important way. So this is a primary organizing principle in society. In fact, people are able to categorize individuals by gender faster than they can categorize people by any other category. So when we ask people, is this a boy or a girl, people are very, very quick, quicker than they are at any other sort of category. And that's because it's a primary category that we use in society. 
Now, we also think that that's a naturalized way of being, right? But we could think of other ways that we might categorize society. Um, and we, we can also think of other sorts of ways that we might play up this idea that gender as a binary, one or the other, right, is sort of an interesting way of looking at it. So let's say we organize society by hair color. And we were like, it's either brown or blonde, right? And if you've got anything else, dye it, right? You're not allowed. And we sort of do that with gender, right? It's either boy or girl. And if you're somewhere in between or you're anything else, you got to fit. Make it fit, right? And we don't do that with other categories, but we do it with gender because we believe that gender is naturalized. And part of what I'm, starting, what I'm going to argue in this uh, talk is that gender is not naturalized and that the ideas of naturalized gender affect and inform our individual experiences, sometimes not in great ways. So we also need to learn about gender, and this is probably not something that you might be able to see from the back, um, but I'll, I'll read a couple of them. Um, so this is something that I am an or industrial organizational psychologist, so that means I help workplaces with diversity and inclusion related sorts of issues. And um, a lot of the people who are in positions to be hiring right now are people who grew up in the 60s and 70s, so people who are in senior level management positions are people who are around that age group. This book came from the 70s. And this is Boys Are Pilots, Girls Are Stewardesses. Boys Are Presidents, Girls Are First Ladies. Boys Are Doctors, Girls Are Nurses. Boys Are Policemen, Girls Are Meter Maids. Boys Can Eat, Girls Can Cook. Boys Build Houses, Girls Keep Houses. Boys Invent Things, Girls Use What Boys Invent. And Boys Fix Things, Girls Need Things Fixed. This was a very popular book that was out in the early 70s, that a lot of people who are now in positions of hiring or positions of making laws or positions of making decisions in society grew up with. And while we know that people can act outside of what they've learned, unless you actively take steps to overcome the gender norms that you've held inside of you, in all likelihood, you're making decisions unconsciously based on these sorts of things. So the bad news is that when you leave here and go to interview for jobs, a lot of the people who you're going to be interacting with grew up with this, right? Girls break things. Boys fix them. And if you were worried that this is not still existing, I'd like to call your attention to a recent book of Barbie that came out called Barbie Can Be a Computer Engineer. And while that sounds promising, um, <laughs> you'll see that Barbie actually, so. This is just one page from the book. Uh, but Barbie is sitting, eating her banana, and she has her computer open. And Skipper comes in and is like, what are you doing? She's like, oh, I'm working on a computer game. I'm a computer engineer. And Skipper's like, that's so cool. Can I play your game? And Barbie says, I'm only creating the design ideas, Barbie says, laughing. I'll need Steven and Brian's help to turn it into a real game. This book just came out, like legit just came out. So Barbie, I can be a computer engineer, means that Barbie can draw what appears to be a cartoon picture of a dog while eating her breakfast and bring it to Brian and Steven to turn into a real game. Um, this is really interesting to me that this still exists. Now, the good news about this is that there was enough of a hubbub about it that they did pull it eventually. But there was a whole team of people at Barbie that okayed this. And the author of the book is actually a woman. Um, which leads me to something else that I think is interesting, and I'll touch more on this, but um, when I talk about gender, a lot of times people think that when you talk about gender, you're um, honing in specifically on negative things that males are doing. And while males do make a lot of decisions in society, consciously or unconsciously, that keep these gender norms alive because they have more positions of power, right? Women and men, both, play into these gender norms that society has created, right? And so this isn't just a male problem. This is also, this is to me a gender problem, right? This is something where gender norms are icky for everyone. And we should think about what that means, right? So this is not just an issue where we have to think about, okay, who's making these sorts of choices? So it's not the case that just because, for example, we would get a female president, right? That all of a sudden patriarchy's gone. Because girls can play patriarchy too, right? So it's not the case that any woman being, being president will be progress for us on the gender front. So I like to bring that up just because I think um, I was at National Women's Studies Association Conference and Bell Hooks, uh, famous, very famous feminist, was the speaker. And uh, the end 
uh, sentence that she used in her talk was, patriarchy has no gender. And, um, and I think that that's important to think about, right? That people can sustain these sorts of systems regardless of what they look like on the exterior. And that's why we all need to join together to fight these sorts of things, regardless of what we subscribe to now. This is a call for everybody, not just one specific group. It's everyone. And because all of this still exists, which uh, may be a little difficult to see, but in a lot of print ads, we see, and we'll get more into this, intense sexualization of females in print ads. Um, this one's really nice, a uh, guy on top of a girl, and he has a car magazine open on top of her face. It's beautiful. Um, there's also a remake of Rosie the Riveter, but instead she, she has a uh, Swiffer. Um, I'm sure Rosie would be very proud. Um, so there are lots and lots of ads. And actually, in my Psych of Gender and Sexuality course, I ask students to bring in an ad that represents some form of sexualization, whether it's male or female. And we take a look at what those, what those look like. And nobody has trouble finding ads. Most students actually bring in multiple ads because they can't pick which one was their favorite. Right? Um, so we find these all over the place. And we're inundated with these images, and we don't really think about them. So you see this on a billboard. Do you stop and think about it? Not really. Right? We don't think about it because we see it so much. But I'm asking us to think about it and think about how it informs our interactions with others. So some definitions. What's the difference between sex and gender? I'm sure you all know this, but just in case. Sex is the biological difference in anatomy between men and women. But gender is the trait considered appropriate, or the set of traits considered appropriate for males and females. So gender is a learned process. It's cultural in meaning. Um, it's not something that we're born with. So our organs tell us what sex someone is, but gender is something that we enact. It's something that we act. So gender is different. Gender is something that we can disrupt. Gender also shapes our access to resources and power. So in every society in our globe today, the more hierarchical and gendered things are in that country, meaning how strongly people cling on traditional gender norms, directly predicts how many women are in power, um, and also directly predicts violence against women within that country. So gendered attitudes and gendered behaviors shape access for women to resources and power, and also shape the way that men and women relate to each other. Societies usually, in general, there are very few societies that have bucked this system are usually hierarchical, meaning that there's one dominant group that has status and power, and they're usually patriarchal, which means that that dominant group is generally male. So while I mentioned before that gender is something that we all need to think about, and we all need to think about whether we're contributing to or subtracting from the gendered notions that we participate in or not on Villanova's campus or elsewhere in our lives, I do have to say, and as I mentioned before, that male power is very much so concentrated at the top. So a lot of decisions that are made about how society is run are made by males, right? So more power sits with males to do the changing, um, which I also think is an important mission. So I am speaking directly to males um, when I say you have an opportunity, a very unique opportunity, when you leave here to change things. Um, and I think that that is very important to recognize, that the responsibility sits on our leaders. And until bias changes, it's more likely that y'all will be our leaders than anyone else. So the responsibility sits with with you, very much so, to get out there and make a difference. So that's important to think about as well. OK, so just some examples, and I'll go through these quickly. Political representation, only 18% of parliament and Congress seats worldwide are held by women. Um, the US is not great at this. So when, um, when my students uh, tell me, we don't need feminism, we don't need gender studies, um, you know, it's over. This is all over. Like, we're good. We don't have, you know, we got women all over the place. We're all graduating from college. It's fine. We don't need this stuff. So let alone the global related aspect, right, outside of US, even if I bought that things were solved in the US, which I vehemently do not, uh, but even if I bought that, right, we still have lots of global issues that we would also think about. But within the US, and we'll keep seeing similar stats of like, in terms of gender, we're just like, OK. We're in the middle. And OK in terms of like everyone's bad and we're like middly bad, right? Um, so this is not, this is not um, our issues are certainly not solved. In terms of the workplace, disparate wage gaps, um, while they do affect everyone, so uh, disparate wage gaps affect disproportionately 
low-income workers as a whole, uh, with the uh, CEO, average CEO in America making 300 times more on average than the average full-time worker within their corporation. Um, so there's some really interesting data that came out of a colleague of mine from Harvard's um, lab talking about the difference between uh, what people think the wealth gap is in America and other countries and what it actually is. And people think that it's like this big and it should be like a little smaller, but really it's like this big. And people have no idea um, what the wealth gap is from the top to the bottom. However, not only at an overarching level in terms of full-time workers versus higher level workers, but the gender wage gap is on top of this, right? On top of this disparate wage gap. And it's even worse for women of color. And the question, the million dollar question that everybody asks is like, but what about women spend less time in the workforce because they have babies? Or what about they maybe have less experience in education or et cetera? This is holding all of that stuff constant. So these are studies where they're taking all that into account and taking two similarly situated people, male and female in the same organization and the woman gets paid less. So this is happening as a result of unconscious, usually bias that's happening. Uh, there are some things women can do also uh, to negotiate better. We don't learn to negotiate well. Um, but this is happening because people make these decisions unconsciously based on gender, and we see the results in the data. So until those biases change or people learn to think out of them, we're going to keep seeing the results in the data. So very low percentages of women holding board seats in Fortune 500 companies. Less than one-fifth of companies have 25% or more women directors. One-tenth have no women serving on their boards. And women of color hold an even smaller percentage of those board seats. So this is an issue that is compounded. This is called intersectionality. And some of you may have heard that term today. Uh, the idea that our identities are interlocking and layered. So we see that women of color do worse because people of color do worse and women do worse. And put together, it's a bad combo, right, in terms of outcomes. So people use more biases against people who have more stigmatized identities. There are also some emotional stereotypes. So when we think about male emotions, what do we think about? Yell them out. What's a male emotion? None. None. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. So unemotional except for what? Angry. Angry, right? Men are allowed to be angry, right? And that means that it affects our relationships. It also affects our workplaces. So we ran a study looking at anger um, in the workplace and uh, sadness in the workplace. And we looked at it intersectionally. And we found that people kind of liked the angry white guy. Um, when something went wrong on the team and the angry white guy was like mad, people were like, yeah, I like the angry white guy. But when the white lady or the black lady did that, they were like, that, that lady's crazy. She's a crazy lady, right? And we collect qualitative responses from people. So people would write, like, that woman is, like, with periods after each one, out of control, right? Um, <laughs> whereas with the guy, they'd be like, he's in charge. I think this guy's going to get some stuff done, right? Um, and that's within our student sample here. So this isn't, like, some faraway land where people think this. This is, like, in our own subject pool. Um, so male emotional stereotypes match those of individuals with high power, which is only anger and very stoic otherwise. Males are also allowed to have one sad tear, like if something really bad happens, like a national tragedy or like, uh, they like their team loses a sports game, you're allowed to have like one sad tear. Um, and there's research on the stoic male tear as well. Um, and this also has implications for men because like when you're little and you fall on the playground, what do you, well it hurts, right? Everyone agrees it hurts. Like, Men don't have like bionic steel bodies, right? So it hurts when you fall. But what do you feel like you can do when you're a boy versus a girl on the playground when you fall? When you're a boy and you're on the playground, do you feel like you can cry a lot when you fall? What do people say to boys when they fall on the playground? Be a, Be a man, right? Man up, shake it off, you're okay. What do they say to little girls when they fall on the playground? Oh, you okay, right? And the girl's like, I'm not. Because um, that, that's what everyone wants to do, right? Um, and so it's really interesting how from a very young age we learn, boys learn to hide their emotions except for anger. And this actually has very deleterious effects on relationships down the line. Because men don't know how to process other emotions. They don't know how to show other emotions. And so guys show their emotions through anger. And that can actually have really negative uh, consequences on relationships like in relationship violence, threats, verbal harassment, etc because men are much more likely to do those things than women. And the reason for that is partially because men don't learn to deal with emotions properly. 
So this has negative, negative consequences for our social relationships. Okay, so also God is a guy, right? And, um, and so my, I, I bring this up basically to show, right, that not to, not to poke fun at religion in general because I think that religion is very useful, but I also think that it's interesting that we looked at those distinctions between sex and gender, right? So when you say whether or not someone's a boy or a girl, primarily the first thing, so if you had a baby and you were like, is this a boy or a girl? You'd be like, let me check, right? And you would look at their actual parts to make that determination. So we agree that sex needs parts, right? And gender is a behavior. So we know that God as a spirit, like I think we know that God doesn't have like actual parts, right? So I don't know what purpose they would serve if he did. Um, but spirit, spirit purposes. But anyway, so, so I don't think that, I think we can all agree on that, right? So what we're saying is that God has a gender. And what does that gender look like, right? So the wrath of God, the authority of God, right? All of these are very masculine sorts of gendered behaviors. And the way that we think about the religion and the way that we shape religion stems from this masculine vision of God, which I think is very interesting. Um, and I was actually in the first group, I was the first class of female altar servers. Um, so females were not allowed to be altar servers uh, when I was growing up until I was in fifth grade. And I was the first year that females were initiated into altar serving. And there were priests who would not give me communion because they were mad that girls were on the altar. So I would stand there 8 a.m. Tuesday morning before school serving and everybody else would get communion and I would be passed over, not you. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, these are, these are interesting experiences that rack up that could have taught me that I didn't belong there, right? So I am just a stubborn bugger. So I, sticked, I stuck with it, but if I had dropped out, maybe my lesson would have been, well, the church isn't a place for me, right? Um, and also, we still know that um, women aren't allowed to be priests because they can't talk to God, so God only talks to guys. Um, if I want to talk, he's like, I'll t I'm not telling you the special stuff, right? Um, so so we, we, know that this is, we know that this is important. We know that this is stuff that shapes our interactions with other people. Let's talk about education. So I'm highlighting all these major institutions very quickly. We could go more into these. So like politics, religion, schooling, media, all of these are huge unpacked. Like we could have a whole class on every single one of these, right? And gender. Um, so I'm giving a really quick snapshot. But these are important to quickly go through, I think, because they help demonstrate all the areas of our lives where we've learned gender, and then we bring them all here, right? So we're in an academic setting right now. Women are less likely to be sent for schooling by their families worldwide. So if a family only has enough money to send one child and they have a boy and a girl, they're much more likely worldwide to send the boy than to send the girl. Um, even when they are sent to school, studies show that teachers tend to pay more attention to male students. Uh, so teachers tend to dote more on male students, answer their questions more, tend to give more positive feedback when they do ask questions. That's a very good question, right? Those sorts of things. Um, so males learn early on that it's okay to ask questions and that they belong in the school space. We also know that unpaid household hours are undervalued. So when people leave school settings and don't have education to back them up and get jobs, they go into the household. And it would be better if people that went into the household and people that went into working areas were equally valued within society, but we know that that's not the case, right? So women doing housework are not seen as equally valued as doing work because it's not paid work, even though we could pay someone to do it. And there are studies that show that the pay would be pretty good <laughs> uh, if we quantified it. Um, and women are also still highly underrepresented in military and police and fire jobs. One of the drivers of that is because men are more attracted to these jobs than women are. So in communication, we also see differences in gender, and I'm sure many of you can relate to some of these. I know uh, my students uh, widely relate to this. So men are more likely to do intrusive interruption. Um, I don't know if anyone has seen the uh, new commercials that just came out. I believe it's for uh, Secret, where it's uh, Stop Saying Sorry. I don't know if you've seen them, but uh, about how women always say sorry. So um, I think that this is so interesting. And one of the examples that they use in the commercial that I never thought about, but I think about now, where a guy sits down, um, what's it called? Manspreading? That's a thing, right? Okay, on Twitter, yeah. Um, okay, so a guy sits down and is like sinking in and hits your elbow as he sits down and you say, oh, I'm sorry, even though like you, you didn't move from your space, <laughs> right? Um, so apologizing for things that you had actually no no uh, part in. Um, and also, 
Men doing more uh, intrusive interruption, which is you're in the middle of saying something, and as you're finishing what you're saying, someone steps in and says, ah, right, and cuts off the end of your sentence. Um, men are much more likely to do that, and for a reason, because when women do it, people rate them less favorably. So a lot of these things are being done because women are gauging people's reactions to their communication styles and picking up on those reactions and saying, well, from now on, I'm not going to do X anymore, right, because people didn't seem to like that. Um, men are actually more talkative that than women. So the stereotype is like, ladies love their talking, right? They're just always talking, gossiping. Another commercial, um, the Klondike bar commercial where the guy has to listen to his wife for 10 seconds and then all the confetti comes down. Do you guys know that one? I hate that commercial. Um, that commercial makes me so mad. But, um, so, uh, he has to, and like, he's like, like doofy and I'm and she's like all pulled together and stuff. I'm like, where's her confetti? Like, really? Um, but anyway, so, so, uh, so, you know, we see this happening where we have this stereotype in society that women keep talking. In reality, in studies that have counted the number of words that men say over the course of a day, men say more words than women. And that's because they tend to be more talkative at work and more talkative at school. And we spend 70% of our waking hours either in school or work. So a lot of our time is spent in these areas where it's productive task-based talk that men are more likely to do. And men are also more likely to use direct orders than women. Women also smile more, but they're not genuine smiles. So this is back to that like, you should share and be nice, right, from when you're little. Like, if that person's mean to you, you just smile, right? Just turn the other cheek and smile. Um, and so you get these sorts of things that are going on, right, where women tend to smile a lot more, even though it's not a genuine smile. So women get in the habit of doing the, right, which is not like, I don't really, and, and people do this even in response to harassment. So we're so trained to smile when people say anything to us, even if it's offensive, that women's responses, and maybe you've seen this happen on campus, someone says something that's harassing to someone when they're out or walking down the sidewalk or whatever the case may be, and their first reaction is to laugh and smile. Right? Even though inside they're like, that was creepy. But you're still, <laughs> you're still smiling, right, at the person who said it to you because we've learned that smiling is the response that women give to social interactions. You show happiness. Men tend to show more visual dominance, even with equally experienced and status women. And visual dominance means that I'm going to look away while, while you're talking to me. So if I'm talking to you and we're talking and you're telling me something, I'm going to look at you a little bit and then I'm going to look over here. I'm going to look over there. I'm going to come back to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm going to look at you, right? So I'm paying, I'm showing you that what you're saying is not super important to me, right? So research shows that visual dominance is something that men do much more than women. Men are also more likely to initiate touch with women, and touch is also a powerful, a power kind of play, right? So if I touch you on the shoulder, I come up behind you, I touch you, or I touch you on the back, right? That's a power kind of move, and men are more likely to do that than women are. Okay, so I like to do a so what. So all this stuff is like, okay, so we do these things differently or we behave differently due to gender norms. Who cares, right? Doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. So we talked a little bit about the media, and the American Psychological Association actually did a, did a study which showed that exposure to sexualized female athletes, so these are high-performing females, and we've all seen these sexualized pictures of female athletes, so like, Anna Kornikova, like was she even good at tennis? I don't know. Um, and so we see, these, we see these pictures of female athletes um, sexualized. And we think, well, what's the big deal? Who cares? Well, actually, research shows that looking at pictures of sexualized female athletes decreases women's efficacy for sports compared to when they look at more performance-oriented images. Now, this, this was done in a lab study where people looked at those images readily. Um, in our real lives, we see many more images of sexualized than high performance. So we're being bombarded with these images all the time and not even thinking about them. But they're having an effect on how we view ourselves. They also have an effect on men. Men are more likely to endorse women as primarily sexual objects after viewing these sorts of sexualized female photos. 50% of print ads have been demonstrated to sexualize women in some way. So that's half of what we see. So unless half of what we buy has to do with women being sexy, don't think that's the case, uh, we've got a problem, right? because we're seeing stuff that's not what's being sold. And men who are exposed to more print ads with sexualized women are more likely to think of women's bodies as serving sexual purposes primarily, and women who not only 
view these images, but then come to hold more gendered views of women's bodies and roles in society as a result, are more likely to self-sexualize, so portray themselves in that same way, and feel less connected to themselves as, at, like, as actual beings capable of having good relationships. And if we think that this problem is getting better, there's only been a slight decrease in these images since 1955. So that's a long time ago. And, and when people think that these things are getting so much better, we are growing so much. Yes, we've done stuff, and it's been good, right? But we need to do more stuff, because the increases that we made are not as amazing as people think. The American Psychological Association also found that commercials, TV, movies, music lyrics, videos, magazines, advertising, sports, video games, and the internet revealed that women were more often than men depicted as sexualizing and depicted as sexualized in an objectifying manner. Um, either wearing, revealing or provocative clothing, portrayed in ways that would emphasize their body parts, serving as decorative objects. Women are also more frequently the target of men's sexist comments, sexual remarks, and behaviors in the media. So they also did a study not only just of how frequently people were shown, but how frequently people said directly sexist and harassing things to women. Another part of the study is that they coded the women's responses, and the most likely response was smile, like I mentioned before, right? So what does this mean? So all these sexually objectifying experiences tend to lead women to self-objectify, to see themselves as merely objects for people to use sexually or otherwise. Um, and the more self-objectification people have, the more anxiety people have about their appearance. The um, this is called flow, reduced flow. Flow is when like you feel like you're really in the zone. You know when you're doing something, like you got your headphones on, you're writing a paper for class, and you're like, I'm in the zone, right? Like you're flowing, right? That's flow, or as opposed to sitting there and being like, oh man, I can't think of what I want to say, I'm going to come back to it, whatever. So you know when you get in the zone with something, what that feels like. So women who experience this are less likely to get into that mode when they're doing their work, um, more likely to feel interrupted or disjointed in their thoughts. Um, there's also a diminished awareness of internally what people want, feelings of body shame, anxiety about physical safety for themselves, and all that leads to higher likelihood of disordered eating, depression, and sexual dysfunction. So this stinks, right? This isn't good. <laughs> um, this is bad. And when we see these outcomes happening in society and we wonder why they're happening, and why they're happening primarily to women, we can start to think about the ways in which women are viewed in society and what that does to how women portray themselves in society, right? What are the ways, that, what are the ways in which women begin to hold these things true for themselves and enact those gender norms as well, which is not a blaming, it's not a blaming tool at all. It's a tool to demonstrate when you look around you and you see women act, enacting these gender norms, it's some rationale for why that might be happening, right? Why we might see women doing those sorts of things. The APA also found that the earlier that this happens, the stronger the effects. So the earlier women start seeing themselves as sexual beings, the stronger these effects are later on in life and the more likely they are to be exposed to sexualized images of themselves or other women, the, er the worse the effects. So I don't know if you guys are aware of these Bratz dolls. Do you guys know what they are? Yeah, they're terrible. So I like that noise, whoever made it. Um, and so the Bratz dolls are uh, supposed to be like tweens, but they're dressed in very provocative outfits. They wear lots of makeup, and their job is basically to be like a clique of fashionistas. Um, and these are very popular dolls with young girls. Um, a new crop has come up that's very much like Bratz, but in monster form, Monsters High. Um, so these are like vampire Bratz, I think. Um, and they're also very popular and uh, sort of do the same thing, right? So very provocative clothing um, and, and a lot of makeup and uh, very much so focused in their stories on fashion and other sorts of things. So we see gender all around us. We learn it from a young age. We accept it as natural. So we forget that we learned it, right? We erase that part. And we're like, well, this is just how it is, right? I like this stuff. I like to put this stuff on myself. I like to dress this way. I like to act this way. This is me. And I think a lot of times we forget how much of who we are is socialized. And I think that that's really important to think about. And I'm going to ask you to think about that. As you go through your day, when you wake up in the morning, when you put on what you put on, and you spend time in front of the mirror doing whatever it is you do or don't do if you're a guy, 
or if you do do stuff if you're a guy, what that looks like, right? And so when you think about what you do in the morning and how you interact with people throughout the course of the day, how much of it is you? We think so much of our behavior is because that's who I am. That's just me. And I would be that way any, anywhere. And that's not the case, right? We actually find in a lot of psychological research that people, so there's been psychological research where people have been told um, as an authority figure, there's a person on the other side of this wall, you can't see them, and I'm gonna ask you to shock that person with increasingly large shocks. And people can't see the other person, there is no other person. Um, and if the experimenter keeps telling them to shock the person, the majority of people continued shocking that person until that person could no longer be heard screaming anymore just because someone told them to. The majority of people. So I bet if we took all the people in this room and said, would you ever shock someone to death? You'd be like, what? No, I never do that. But the research shows that the majority of people under the right circumstances would, right? It's not that you're bad people, it's that you've been taught to obey authority. And that's something very important in our society. So the idea here is that a lot of us think that the decisions that we make are ours, but they're not. They've been socialized. They're part of what our culture tells us to do. And we make decisions very much so based on where we are. Um, I work a lot with victims of human trafficking. And um, a lot of them are runaways. They run away from home. That's originally how they get involved in trafficking. And um, their life stories, the reasons that they ran away from home, are incredibly, incredibly moving. Um, and the things that they've endured as small children and things that they've endured in life are unbelievably shocking. Um, as an interviewer, I have to remind myself not to react to their stories because they're so shocking. Um, and then to hear students say things like, well, it's their own fault that they ended up in prostitution. I would never do something like that. Well, yeah, you wouldn't, and neither would they if they were you. <laughs> but you're not them and they're not you, right? So we don't know, in fact, and the data shows that risk factors like homelessness, hunger, uh, abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse in childhood, makes you 4,000 times more likely to use intravenous drugs and to get involved in prostitution and other sorts of things. 4,000 times more likely. So the way you feel about it now, 4,000 times that would be what you felt if you were in that situation. So a lot of times we think, no matter what, I'd make the same decisions. Not the case, right? So a lot of things in society, we think they're natural. We think they're us. And we keep performing these things. And the more we perform it, the more we think it's us, right? And then we pass this on to the next generation, that this is how things are, and the cycle starts again. And that's where we're at right now, right? That's, that's where we're at. So I'd like to ask uh, a couple of questions in a minute. We're going to go through a few things about doing gender self-presentation norms. Um, so when I'm talking about gender as a performance, I'm talking about what we put on and put off, right? And I think this is so fascinating. So in a recent study, the most popular phone sex hotline girl in the country was a man. That's fascinating to me uh, when we're talking about gender as a performance, right? So this is something you can study and act. We've studied it, we're acting it, right? We know what it means. And so gender is something that we can perform and we perform it pretty well. So in a sense, although drag queens represent and and symbolically, in a really interesting way, right, this overdone gender performance, right, the reason that that's interesting is because it calls attention to the fact that gender is a performance to begin with, right? It calls attention to the fact that they're performing it in an over-the-top way, but just because we're performing it less than that doesn't mean we're not performing it. We're just like mid-range drag queens, right? Yeah. So, um, so I think that this is, this is all um, part of what we need to recognize as a building block. Women's bodies do have more extreme ways to perform. So grooming is seen as being feminine. So I love all the makeup ads that are like, be the most natural you you can be. Put all this crud on your face. Um, and so it's like all these, <laughs> all these you know, makeup ads that tell you to be natural by loading your face up with stuff, right? It's a very strange message, right? And this is not a fault-finding activity in terms of painting on gender because, you know, I put on makeup too, right? This is not something that I don't do, so I'm not excluding myself from this. But it's something interesting to think about, right? Painting on gender, right? Highlighting the societal structures in place. And by the way, these industries make so much money off telling us that our faces are not good enough. Um, so much money off of the idea that our faces can't, 
go to the earth without being married. So my neighbor uh, puts on makeup to put out the trash. So like she puts on makeup before anyone can possibly see her even like with the trash. And I'm out there like in my PJs, I'm like, hey. Um, and she's like all done, right? Because she's afraid someone's gonna see her. Um, which is really interesting. I also, uh, my grandma, my grandma and grandpa were married for 55 years and my grandpa never saw my grandma without makeup on. She woke up at 5 a.m. every day before he got up from work to get ready and she went to bed after he went to bed and like took off her makeup after he went to sleep. So for 55 years, she never wanted him to see her without makeup. She's not the only person that's, that I've heard this from either because when I've told this to other people, they're like, my grandma did that too. Um, so, you know, this is interesting, an interesting part of our culture. Um, and, and we're fed this stuff all the time. Um, so some of the negative consequences of these sorts of things, women are more likely to encounter hostile and aggressive behaviors, higher experiences of sexism, sexist jokes, lack of respect, sexist names, sexual harassment. 97% of women will experience this at least once a year. So I like to do this. Um, how many people have experienced sexual harassment, not once a year, they think, but this year, like in the last four months? Like some form of harassment? Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's a lot. It's <laughs> a lot of people, right? That's like almost every girl. <laughs> um, and so that's interesting, right? That's just in four months. So this estimate, once a year, is probably pretty low because if it's just three months or about four months into the year and it doesn't happen to you for the next eight months, I'd be very surprised. Right? So we see this in the military. We see this across domains. Um, and there are a lot of negative outcomes for individuals. And these are also the same negative outcomes for people who experience racism and heterosexism as well, and probably other isms that aren't studied as much as they should be. So I don't have data to support that. But I'm, uh, you know, consistency would tell us that, yeah, that's the case. Depression, anger, anxiety, and lower self-esteem. Um, I want to just talk quickly about where are the guys in this equation. Uh, so. Part of the reason that I changed my course from the psych of women to the psych of gender is because I think that it's important to talk about female standards in terms of gender. So we've got to paint on all this gender stuff. We have to act nice. We have to act meek. We can't yell at people. We can't be angry. We have to share all this kind of stuff, right? But guys have some rules too, right? And a lot of guys don't like these rules. And more and more I find as I teach these classes and as I talk to men out in the world, I find that they're upset about what they've got to be as well. And they don't like it, but they do it even though they're upset. So this idea that boys don't cry, it's better to be mad than sad, getting revenge, taking it like a man, manning up, uh, having a lot of toys, cars, uh, belongings, being like wealthy or the appearance of being wealthy, um, not caring much about stuff, don't ask for directions, figure it out yourself. Um, if you're a nice guy, you finish last. And just this attitude of like, it's all good, right? I'm not worried about anything, nothing upsets me. I'm gonna go out and party and have a good time because I'm a guy and I don't have emotions, right? It's all good. And that's the kind of thing I think that we don't talk about a lot and I like to talk about it, right? So um, heads down, yeah, cool. How many guys in the room feel like they've heard this message before? Mm. Heads up, that was like every guy. So, um, so even though we don't talk about the, we don't talk about this a lot, right? A lot of times when we have a binary and one side has more power, the side that has more power can hide, right? And we don't ever talk about what that looks like, what that culture looks like. And I don't talk about it. I like talking about this because this culture is partially what drives what's going on with women too. So we've got to change this culture as well. This culture of not showing emotion, revenge, manning up, right? Do it for yourself. It's all good. So within guys, there are three cultures. The culture of entitlement, and this is based on a book by Michael Kimmel called Guyland. It's an amazing book if you haven't already read it. If you, um, so a lot of people in my class, they read it, and then they're like, I made my brother read it, I made my dad read it, I made my mom read it, and it's not boring. Like, you can take it to the beach and read it. It's research-based, like very highly research-based, but it's a, good, it's a compelling book, so you should get it. But um, Michael Kimmel talks about three cultures, and he interviewed 17,000 college-age males and found these three cultures emerged from the college-age males. A culture of entitlement, I deserve this because I'm a guy, I should get these things, and that's both entitlement to women and entitlement to jobs. 
but also this sense of if I don't get those things, I feel like I should get them. Everyone's telling me I should. I should have a lot of girls. I should have a lot of success in my job, right? And if I don't have these things, then what am I, right? How am I, am I not a guy anymore? Well, I better get them, right? I better get those things because that's how I know if I'm a guy, right? So this idea of a culture of entitlement that springs from this idea that guys should have these things and they want them, right? Because they feel like it's what makes them a man. A culture of silence and a culture of protection. So guys don't call other guys out on doing things that they find offensive, right? Letting it sit, that you shouldn't rat your friends, right? And protecting people in the group. So the book highlights two specific instances, Glenridge and Metham sexual assaults. The Glenridge assault was a set of boys from a football team um, in Glenridge, a big football high school who sexually assaulted a girl with special needs uh, by luring her into a basement um, and taking turns sexually assaulting her. Um, there were three boys who actually participated in the activity, but there were about 15 boys who watched. Similarly, in the Metham case, this was a group of boys who were hazing a person who was on a sports team with them, and they uh, penetrated him with a baseball bat covered in Icy Hot um, over and over again as a group chanting. Um, one boy did it, 15 guys watched, around 20 guys watched. No one told anyone. So everyone watched this happen, left the scene, and no one said anything. And when they talked to the guys afterwards who were there about why they didn't say anything, they said that they felt like they didn't know how to say something. They didn't know how to stand up. They knew it wasn't right. One boy said he went home and threw up, right? But still never told a soul, never told an authority figure. So in both cases, the victim was the person that told. Um, and that's unlikely to happen, actually, um, in most instances. So it was lucky that the victim told because no one else was going to. And so the question is, what is that, right? What is that feeling of being in a group where you know something that's going on is wrong and you can't say anything about it? You don't want to say anything about it. And how does that work, right? And how do you protect then the people in the group? So some people reacted by saying, I knew it was wrong and I didn't say anything and I'm sorry. Other people reacted by saying, I'm going to continue to support my team. I'm going to continue to support my team players. This is ridiculous that they're in trouble for this. These are good guys. These are family, family people, right? They come from good families, right? So the other half responded in a different way. Similarly now, how many people are aware of the, this Facebook scandal that's going on at Penn State with the fraternity? So has anyone read the Philadelphia Magazine interview that they did with the uh, one boy from the fraternity? Some of you? Okay. Um, so basically, the boy uh, and why they didn't hire a lawyer to speak for these uh, students, I have no idea. Uh, they just let the boys talk to random reporters, which has not been a good strategy. Um, but uh, basically this boy said, um, more or less, to the reporter, um, this was not meant to be, this is not meant to be something that should be taken seriously. This is a joke. So this is taking pictures of unconscious and passed out girls in various states of nakedness and posting them on a Facebook page that had 144 members. Um, and this that he's talking about, he says, was a joke. It was funny. It was meant to be a satire on fraternities. That's what he said. He said, go to any frat website, totalfratmove.com or any of those. You'll see lots of people posting stuff like that. The fact that we're getting in trouble for this is ridiculous. Everyone's doing it, which I think is an interesting argument, right? Um, all guys are doing that. Everybody's stabbing people. Why can't I? We wouldn't say that about other stuff, right? Um, we say it about this. Um, and so, so the idea um, that this boy has is, why am I getting in trouble? Why us? And then at the end, which I thought was also an indicator of how poorly prepared this boy was for the interview, um, the reporter said, well, you said it was funny. So you're saying it's funny to take pictures of unconscious girls and then post pictures of them naked without their consent. He said, well, funny is the wrong word. I guess it's like a joke. It's like a satire. And then they said, well, did you post any of the funny pictures? And he said, no, I'm a good guy, which to me, it was so interesting um, in terms of the logic that he was using. Uh, so these are the kinds of things that happen, right? When we see these scandals break out, we see guys protecting the herd, right? 
We also see other guys releasing statements saying that they're embarrassed and they apologize and that they're very upset about the actions that their fraternity took, right? So we see people doing this, but again, until one guy, and throughout the interview, the guy kept calling this other guy a rat that told about the Facebook page. So he's like, you're not supposed to tell on your brothers. That one guy, he was a rat, right? So still perpetuating this idea that even if something wrong is happening, you shouldn't say anything or else you're a rat. So I think that these are really interesting um, societal level um, events that have happened to discuss. So we don't revolt against things. Why don't we say anything? Well, because attitudes, values, and beliefs are used to keep powerful groups in place. Um, and women are seen in, as in need of protection, restriction, and control. And guys see that these attitudes, values, and beliefs in their groups need to be maintained in order to maintain some sense of identity. Because we really don't have a good definition of masculinity if not that, right? That's our definition. So what's our definition if it's not that? And I don't think people know the answer to that question. Michael Kimmel suggests that it's courage, the ability to do the right thing. This is sort of like what it means to be a human, right? But Michael Kimmel suggests that if we redefine masculinity as being actually being a courageous and brave person who speaks out and does the right thing when it's important, that maybe that's a helpful for guide work, guide, guiding principle for males to use when making decisions, as opposed to using our current definitions of masculinity, which involve a lot of the things that we talked about before. So I also want to mention quickly before I open up for discussion, um, there are also links between gender and sexuality. So when we think about gendered harassment, we also have to think about sexuality-based harassment. So much of the harassment that LGB and especially T individuals face is based on a perceived break with gender norms. So uh, I don't know if you remember uh, a couple years ago, uh, someone, uh, her name's CJ Pasco. she came to speak here. And uh, her book is called Dude, You're a Fag, and it's about high school bullying for LGBT community. And one of the things that she found consistently over and over again in her work with high schoolers was that when she asked people what they meant by calling someone a fag, they said, well, I don't mean anything about their sexuality. It's just that they act like a girl. So this conflation of sexuality-based bullying based on breaking with gender norms. Because what's a huge gender stereotype for guys? Who are they supposed to be attracted to? Girls, and lots of them, right? So that's a major break with being masculine, right? So our sexuality-based stereotyping and bullying also comes from this perceived break with gender norms. And that's where the derivative of many of the derogatory terms that we hear come from. LGBT individuals are much more likely to self-harm and commit suicide. They are much more likely to suffer from depression and anxiety, to be homeless, to abuse substances, and they're less likely to finish high school or college, directly related to their level of rejection at home and at school. So if we want some so what on LGBT, why does it matter that we hold people to gender norms? Why does it matter that gender norms are linked to sexuality norms? Well, that's why, right? There are lots of people in society who are suffering as a result of, this, of these stereotypes and having really negative consequences. Um, all of, uh, not all, but a lot of my research is based on the LGBT community. I do a lot of work specifically with the transgender community. And um, it's really interesting to me to see how people react. I actually had the opportunity to interact with a Villanova grad who um, now identifies as transgender at a conference that I was at. Um, and he approached me and we talked for a little while. And um, we were talking about what that experience is like. And uh, one of the things that he said was, you know, I didn't want to wear dresses. I wanted to wear guys' kind of clothes. And I didn't want to have my hair a certain way. I wanted to shave my head. And he's like, you know, it's just a cloth shaped in a particular way. And like, I liked that cloth better than that cloth. And everyone thought I was insane. And like, that is a really interesting way to put it, right? It makes us really think about what we judge people for being, so you like a cloth shape like this or a cloth shape like that? You wanna wear this kind of haircut instead of that haircut? You must be crazy, right? It seems crazy because it's not normative, but what are our norms anyway? Where do, where do we even get them from? And why, we could easily switch them out, right? Why does my hair look like this? Why doesn't it look some other way? It's because people respond to me a particular way when I have this kind of hair. Right? People respond to all of us in response to what we look like. Right? But if we got different responses for different things, we would do it different. We would pick something else and think we picked it. Right? So I think that it's really important to think about these things as very, very much so ingrained in the way that we've set up society's norms. And we can change them if we want. So I want to talk about stereotyping, prejudice, and discrimination, which are all linked together. And I want to talk about 
Whether or not we think it's fun to surrender our right to question why the bodies that we inhabit and the identities that we subscribe to should have anything to do with whether or not we're judged equally or fairly as a human being. And I want us all to agree right now whether we think this sounds fun or not. So raise your hand if you think it sounds fun. Okay, we don't think it's fun. So we don't want to dig in, so let's dig in. So I want us to talk about what it means at Villanova. So think about who you are at your core. I want you to think about how you interact with others and how you portray yourself. And I want us to talk about whether things that we want to change. Behaviors we might regret, how people think about us, what sorts of things we might have done, and what sorts of things we'd like to change on campus. So I want to open it up for discussion, talking about who we are at our core and how we act differently from that on campus, and how we see people acting differently maybe from that on campus. So who has thoughts about that? Brave soul, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point, right? That people are not as interested in feminism um, because it has a social stigma. So your inclination that people, that there's something attached to the word people don't like, that's true. Um, in fact, 75% of people say that they agree with the equality that everybody should have equal rights and access, but only 55% of people say that they identify as feminist. And that's basically like the definition of feminism. So if you take the definition and ask people, do you agree? They're like, oh, yeah. And then if you're like, but are you a feminist? They're like, oh, no. Right? <laughs> um, and so that's, that's really interesting. You know, and I think that having a larger dialogue about why. Why do we think it is that this kind of thought is not popular on campus? Why don't people talk about it more? Why isn't this cinema packed full of people angrily wanting to break gender norms? Why? What do we think? Did you say they want to get wiped up? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the idea, so, so you're, you're saying that you think that people at Villanova are coming from a place where they've never really had to question gender norms because gender norms are going to kind of work for them in the sense that the goals that they set might be attained given the actions that they're doing even though it might not be the best thing for women in general. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think we're also a very polite campus, which sounds like, but it doesn't sound like an insult, it sounds like a compliment, but um, I think it's much more difficult to engage in dialogue about um, issues that are controversial or are not relevant. Yeah. So people don't want to offend other people, so that means we let people who are offending people do so. <laughs> right? So if someone says something that's offensive, we don't want to say that's offensive because we don't want to offend them, even though they're being offensive, right? Um, and so I think that that's really interesting uh, that there's this level of politeness that people have. And um, one of my uh, students is doing a project on norms on campus, and uh, it's really interesting because polite's one of the things that com comes up. And sometimes people are like, people are really polite. And then other times people are like, people are really polite. You know, like there's two camps on what that, if, if that's a good or a bad thing. So to your point, yeah. What else? What else makes this tough stuff to talk about? What sorts of things do you see people, oh, go ahead. It's just the judgment stuff, so like, we're not touching like, oh, you're on Yeah, so you kind of feel like an outsider. Like it's something that um, being a feminist or not could preclude group membership. Yeah. So it's an organizing factor, right? Or it tells people something about you that might be negative. What sort of behaviors do we see happening on campus that tell us that campus is polite or that this isn't a place that, or this might not be a place where you would feel comfortable engaging in those sort of gender kinds of conversations or intervening in behaviors that you don't like? So how many people have ever seen a behavior that they don't like on campus? 
something that they find offensive or that they wish that they could stop? How many people said something or did something? And I'm not judging you, I just wanna know. Smaller amount, but some, okay. So for the people who did step in, what made you step in? What do you think, what was, what was the situation if you mind sharing, yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you feel like you've grown kind of a thick skin, right, uh, in terms of stepping up and, and making yourself heard in those kinds of situations, but other people might not have feel that way or have done so. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So you're a little bit more resilient in the face of those sorts of things. And maybe one of the action steps that we could take is to think about, well, what, what would build that resiliency in people or what would build that capability in people on campus? For people who said that they didn't step in, could you share why or what you think goes on? Or even if you saw something else happen where people didn't step in, could you share? Yeah. Yeah, and oftentimes we feel unprepared, and part of the reason we feel unprepared is because we don't have conversations like this that much, right? So if we had conversations like this a lot, right, and you were like, I know that there's like a whole room of people who if I said something, they'd be like, that was cool. Then you can keep that in your mind when you want to say something. But if you don't have that context, it's difficult to know how people are going to react, and that can be scary, or you don't have the knowledge. Knowledge is power, too. So I always had these feelings in my like gut about these sorts of issues, but when I went to grad school and I got like stats and research to back it up, my, I was like, my parents thought I was a nightmare. Because I came home and I was like, oh yeah, I've been saying this stuff, but now I got all these facts to back it up. Uh, and, and they, and, but it, was, it works, right? Um, it's useful. What else? What other sorts of things do we think are issues that people don't want to step in at? Or what, what have you seen? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so another instance where you're not, you're not ready to engage in the conversation. But that's okay, because as you learn more, you can keep adding to your repertoire of stepping in. But also think about like when you go out. So like I know a lot of people don't want to like share this info, right? But when you go out, just do this for me as an action step, right? When you go out on the weekends, just look around you and think about the stuff that we talked about today. And think about how people's actions and behaviors in a gendered way are shaping a society that we participate in. And how our actions and behaviors, as we are complicit or not in that kind of a culture, perpetuates or detracts from that culture. So I want you to think about this one question. What can we do to be a caring community of students who cares for each other in every sense, right? So we are a caring community, we care about each other. If you ask anybody, do Villanova students care? Like, yeah, they do care, right? But I want us to think about how we care about each other as students. Respectful caring. Respect other people for who they are, for what they bring to the table. Respect their bodies, respect their ideas, right? How are we doing that? And I want you to think about what actions we need to take if we want to see more of this. Because I think this sounds pretty good. And I want you to think about what you want Nova Nation to look like. What sorts of behaviors do you want to see enacted on campus? What sorts of things would make you more proud to be a part of this culture, right? There are plenty of things to be proud of. What would make you more proud, though? What are things you'd like to see that maybe don't make you proud? So I want you all to take this with you and think about everything we talked about, specifically with regard to gender. 
Because I think we don't give ourselves enough time to reflect, we just live, right? We just keep doing, 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 reproducing, reproducing, reproducing these same norms. And we don't disrupt our own processes and think about whether or not what, that's what we want to be doing as people. And if we don't want to be doing it, what do we do and what does that look like? So everybody take some time to think. It's Thursday. Tomorrow, it's Friday, it's the weekend. Get out there and start thinking about what role you play in creating the Villanova that you want to be. Right? So that's all I have to say for everyone.